Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is the coronavirus pandemic in Brazil. We're fortunate to have with us today Professor Jose Mauricio Dominguez to discuss the pandemic in Brazil. Professor Dominguez has a PhD in sociology from the London School of Economics and Political Science, and he teaches at Rio de Janeiro State University in Brazil. He's published many articles and several books, including most recently Critical Theory and Political Modernity, which appeared with Palgrave in 2019. He was the recipient of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation's Annalisa Meyer Research Award for the period 2018-2023, for which he's been spending a considerable amount of time in Germany. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us. So let's start right in with uh, a basic question. Uh, please tell us about the nature and severity of the coronavirus pandemic in Brazil. How bad is it in health terms? And what about the economic situation? Well, as elsewhere, the pandemic in Brazil is very widespread and is affecting life very deeply, has killed a lot of people. But that said, we have now officially 44,000 people infected and 2,400 have died officially, but these numbers, especially the number of infected people, are certainly higher. Mm-hmm. Yet the situation is not as bad as we could imagine initially. It's not very clear how it's going to develop. This might change very quickly. More people could get infected, and these numbers could be could go up very quickly, and a lot of more people die. But so far... It hasn't been the disaster that we had anticipated. It's painful, it's complicated, it's affecting social life, political life. The economy is suffering a lot. Uh, We have a lot of people who are in the informal market and they are being hit very badly by that. Uh, People who are employed in the formal market have been sacked, they have pay cuts. The government, the state are intervening, but certainly not as much as they could or they should. And on top of that, we have a president which, at best, can be neutralized in order not to mess things up too much, Mm. which he has tried. But the governors, the Minister for Health, uh, and in general, the health system have been performing, I'd say, in face of the situation and some scarcity of resources very well. 
Okay. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the government's response to the crisis and what you mean when you say the best thing to do would be to neutralize the president. Well, initially he took the same tack as Trump. He denied that there was a real problem. It was just a small code. It seems quite clear that he was infected when he went to the U.S. to meet, in fact, Trump, because his, everybody who was with him was basically infected, and apparently had it very mildly. So it's a, it's a card he can play. He goes out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. provokes the health system, provokes the health minister, pretending that this is nothing serious. He would like to open the economy because he's very much concerned with the fact that a deep recession might harm his attempted re-election, but that would happen if we think two years and a half, but he's already desperate of, about that. He thinks that if the, there is a very bad economic downturn, which is bound to happen, mm-hmm. he would lose re-election. So he tried very hard to fight all the sanitary response, which the, the whole health system and the governor were trying to put in place. He wasn't able to stop it, so he was sort of neutralized also by the military ministers who are many his government. Mm. But this delayed a lot of some of the preparations. The money didn't flow immediately as immediately as should have flowed. We had problems to buy respirators and some other equipment. He also, like Trump, decided the, the, the that medicine, chloroquine was essential and very good to fight the infection, which in the end, so far at least, has proven false. So it has been neutralized, but it's still pushing, pushing to have his agenda implemented. And this has created a lot of problems and is bound to create some more mm. in the next few weeks because at some point you have to reopen the economy. And, it, and it's not very clear how this is going to be done. So he might take the opportunity to push his agenda again. Mm-hmm. What about the popular reaction to his uh, handling of the crisis? This is a bit odd because Datafolha, which is a center, a very important agent for collecting data on public opinion, has shown that 70, uh, 79% of the population support social distancing. On the other hand, his, his administration of the crisis has got the support of 59% of the people in the view. So it's a bit strange. The, mm. the two numbers don't really match, but I guess that as the government is actually spending a lot of money to support uh, informal workers, people who have been sacked and this sort of thing, He's seen as someone who's trying to take care of the economy and not let things go awry excessively, at least. And so he always says now, he changed a bit his discourse. He's saying that he's trying to balance health and economic performance. And this might have worked in relation to a large part of the population. But I doubt that it will this is not very clear, and it's. I think he was very hurt, uh, wounded politically, although he's not dead. He has suffered a lot and has lost a lot of popularity as well. 
So it sounds as though the government's response, notwithstanding, you know, foot dragging at the top, has been uh, much like that in the United States and Europe, which is to say massive government expenditures to bolster the private sector, to bolster small businesses, to uh, support unemployed workers. Is that more or less the way you would describe it? Yes, true. Definitely true. It's curious because Bolsonaro is a very right-wing man. He was connected, he is connected to the most right-wing elements of the former dictatorship in Brazil. A sort of mad dog, like torturers and this sort of thing. And he has a a finance and economic minister who actually worked for Pinochet during the... Mm initial stages of the Chilean dictatorship, and he's a privatizer, a radical neoliberal, and he tried to, to he sort of went, went into denial. This crisis is not very important, we just carry on with privatization, but then he realized that this was impossible, the international response was entirely different, it has, we have now, I think, across the globe, and in Brazil was a sort of emergency Keynesianism, and this man, Paulo Guedes, has uh, was forced, so to speak, to change his sort of approach and and therefore the government is spending a lot of money to support the most vulnerable in the population and business. Although, also, different from other places, they are not complementing really the wages of people who had, had uh, pay reductions, which is a, a way to not to fully support them and at the same time, they try to push some legislation reform related to labor law. In fact, weakening labor law with the argument that this will help, this will help to, to create jobs, which is their agenda originally. So there is some actual effort at Keynesian, emergency Keynesianism, but on the other hand, they try to stick to some aspects of the um, neoliberal reformism, which was at the core of the initial proposals of the government. On the other hand, it's worth mentioning that the military uh, ministers, there are several of them in the government and also at the second level of government, they are putting together a plan for economic recovery, which is based in very heavy investments in infrastructure. Mm. And maybe this finance minister won't be able to go along with them. There is already speculation that he might not, in the medium run or the long run, uh, not stay in his post. So this we have to see. But at this point, there is a lot of public expenditure to bolster the economy, or at least prevent it from simply plunging into depression or something like that. I mean, as you probably know, there was some discussion early on in terms of the American response to the crisis uh, that there would finally be the infrastructure bill that Trump uh, ran on and talked about early on in his administration, but which has never been realized. Um, Do you think that's something that will actually happen in Brazil? I think this is quite possible. It's not very clear because the financial market supports Paulo Guedes very strongly. And Brazil has already a very big problem of public debt, mm-hmm. which has mounted in the last decade. And they wanted to sort it out through cutting back, and especially in social expenditure, and privatizing a lot of, of the few 
public companies which still exist. Some of them, the military, don't want to privatize, like Petrobras or Electrobras, which is the Brazilian uh, national company for electricity. So it's not very clear whether the military will have uh, enough strength within the government and outside it to push this new agenda, because they had not mentioned this sort of agenda so far. Something very, very new. Although some people say, well, these are military people, they are nationalists, they believe in state intervention, but they are quiet in this regard. What happens, though, is that as Bolsonaro is very isolated politically, and a lot of talk about impeaching him is already going around, he has become even more dependent on the military. And that might give them some leverage to change the politics and the policies he's trying to implement through this Paulo Guedes, neoliberal economic and finance minister. So the situation is still uh, open, but I think in all likelihood we're going to have a state that's going to be investing in infrastructure in the next few years, although that will create a deeper problem in terms of public debt. But as I, I think globally, this has become no longer a taboo as it was two or three months ago. The IMF, the Financial Times, the World Banking are already promoting public debt as a way out of the crisis. So I don't think this is so complicated in Brazil, maybe. You have to right. wait, but there is this sort of strong push within the government in order to, to change, actually, the economic policy. I see, but it sounds as though you are suggesting Bolsonaro might not survive this uh, transition, this this phase of the crisis. Well, sometimes it seems he's trying hard to be impeached, but mm. he knows he has the support of at least twenty percent of the population. He's trying to now. He always rejected that to negotiate with the, I mean, the most patrimonial or new patrimonial part of Congress which is called the big center here. These are people who want jobs in government. They want ministries and other agencies, uh, directorship of other agencies, in order to make politics and eventually even get money through this sort of positioning. He didn't want to negotiate with these people because it might be dangerous for him, and he was elected with an anti-corruption discourse, which doesn't really apply to himself and his sons, who are all involved in petty corruption. Now he's trying to get closer to these people in order to have leverage in Congress in order to prevent impeachment. On the other hand, as, has, as he has the support of a large part of the military, he might be safe in, in the sense that uh, it's very difficult to impeach a president who's really strongly supported by the military in a country like Brazil. So... Unless the, situ the situation deteriorates a lot economically, in sanitary terms, and politically, I think he will survive. As I said before, he's but he's not dead. And he tried to make a comeback, fight back and regain popularity. And an agenda like the one I mentioned, which is being pushed forward by the military within government, might perhaps do the trick for him. Mm. So this is interesting because it fits into a debate that seems to me to be going on about the fate of nationalist and populist, so-called populist right-wing uh, politicians in Europe and elsewhere. Um, on the one hand, it's said that 
uh, everybody, it's kind of become an every man for himself sort of situation and countries are cutting off relations, uh, you know, uh, sort of immigration or trade with, uh, with neighbors, with other countries, uh, and reasserting their boundaries basically. And then on the other hand, there's this argument that the crisis has shown the sort of emptiness of a lot of this conservative right wing, uh, so-called populist, um, uh, rhetoric and, and policy making. So in Italy, for example, I mean, the people who were significant in the government just a few months ago are essentially, you know, have sort of disappeared. Uh, but then again, you have Victor Orban, who's kind of reasserted his power and, and basically seen his neighbors as the source of his problems and that sort of thing. How do you see that debate? Well, the aftermath of the 2001 SARS crisis, there was all this effort to make the World Health Organization more powerful and capable to intervene in the sanitary situation of other countries, get information from other sources. This seemed to work in the beginning. Since uh, especially China became stronger and had nationalism in the U.S. with Trump, upon that World Health Organization became if not weaker, unable to really intervene more directly in sanitary crisis. So I think uh, we have a choice now in, in, in terms of help initially. Neither countries will go the nationalist way, and this will prevent the development of the World Health Organization as a stronger a player in terms of global health governance. And there are people who are very uh, optimistic in the beginning of the 2000s and are no longer optimistic. Uh, or we'll have some more cooperation and the World Health Organization will get more funding and more autonomy to do its job. This is one of the aspects I think I started with this because I think it's one, at, at this moment, the central aspect of your, that, that stands at the core of your question. Uh, but this will be, to a large extent, I think, connected and depend on how, more generally, the situation is going to evolve globally. Because if you have this right-wing, so-called populist people uh, staying in power, gaining power in Europe, and Trump getting re-elected, even Bolsonaro staying in power and getting re-elected, of course, a nationalist choice will be much stronger. And we'll have a big problem in health terms, as, as well as in several other dimensions. But I have the feeling, which is, I mean, it's, it's not entirely backed so far by actual facts, but I think we'll probably be in, in the future, that indeed this sort of right-wing populism has been affected negatively by the crisis because they don't really have answers. They try to play uh, with this very, very serious threat to... To, to human lives, to the economy, as if it was nothing. And Trump is paying a price for that. I don't know, it's not clear for me, certainly much clearer to you uh, what this will mean in terms of his possibility of getting reelected. But Bolsonaro, here I see, was affected negatively. In Europe, they can't say much uh, because they, I think they were shown not to be very serious. And besides, I one interesting thing in this whole crisis is that the role of science, mm. science in every traditional terms, has been strongly reaffirmed. And these people don't like science. They think this is rubbish. 
they have this sort of flat earth mentality, which is a nice scientific advance, and this impinges on health issues, impinges on climate change issues, and I think they didn't feature very well during this process because it's very clear that either we have science in good public policy or we don't in terms of what happens to the coronavirus pandemic as well as in relation to other things. So generally, I think this is not a very good moment for this right-wing, extremely right populist people and their choices. In Europe, I think this is very clear. I'm not quite sure about the U.S., and in Brazil, I think it affected Bolsonaro very negatively. The problem is that the opposition is not very strong and stop. it seems not to be too clever and so f- and therefore hasn't been really able to take advantage of the situation. The problem is also that it's very difficult to do something now because the executive has the initiative, they are on TV, they are the ones who speak. So for an opposition, it's very difficult to make a very clear case now and come out and take people to the streets. But you have to see what's going to happen after the crisis because it will be, I think, a medium-long-term process. The crisis is not going to stop now. We have with the pandemic as such, at least one or two years ahead of us. The economic crisis just is starting. You have two, three, four years of recession or even depression. So I think there is a very strong political struggle ahead of us. And I think what is progressive values linked to freedom, to equality, solidarity, have have made a comeback. Whether this will uh, really uh, be reestablished as the main agenda for politics in the years to come is not certain, but I think it's like, and in this regard, it's a very bad moment for the this extremely right populist people. Mm-hmm. I mean, another thing that seems to have made a big comeback is the state. After years of denigration by neoliberal politicians uh, and sort of undermining of the uh, idea that states and governments are part of the solution, uh, they are increasingly seen, I think, in those terms right now, because, of course, they're the only real actor in a position to make the kinds of decisions and, and policies that can really make a difference in a crisis of this magnitude. How would you see that? Well, definitely. I totally agree with you because, okay, the market, we know, is important for any complex advanced society. Solidarity networks, we have seen it they pop up again with young people trying to help the old, poor people organizing to fight the situation and the pandemic when the state is not really present and even when the state is present to to help cope with that. But it's very clear without a very strong central agency capable to muster resources to, to, to promote the management of the situation, to legally coordinate it, politically co- coordinate it, it's impossible really to have an answer to, to, to the situation. So in this regard, I think it's also a very bad time for neoliberalism. It's amazing to see people who two or three months ago would be very critical of any government debt or of any government expenditure are now very supportive, supportive, supportive of that. 
it's true that some of them are already nervous. I was reading the Economist uh, two weeks ago, and they were already saying, well, you have to be careful because once the state comes back, it's very difficult to get rid of it. So they are worried about that, and they are starting to speak of ways to reverse the situation once the crisis is over, which will take, in any case, a long time. But I think... It will be difficult to to do it. It's, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that new liberalism is doomed. That is going to to finish uh, be finished off in one or two years. That there is no comeback to the previous situation. I think you have a more mixed situation. Some reforms and some uh, elements of new liberalism will remain or be advanced, especially perhaps in the labor markets. Uh, but also, I think. Uh, state expenditure to promote uh, economic growth, health care, uh, maybe even a minimum income, citizen uh, minimum income uh, schemes. So this, I think, will probably be variably established across, across the world. Uh, the only problem is that you have also this more repressive and coercive and uh, surveillance side of the state, which will be also possibly reinforced right now. In China, this is very clear. Maybe in Korea as well. In Europe, in the United States, or even Latin America, I don't see that really happen. But it's very clear that the striking of, uh, of sick people and the attempt at controlling and legalizing police uh, uh, repression of people who break the rules of quarantine or this sort of thing. Also, strengthens the hand of the state in terms of surveillance and coercion and, and repression. So you have mixed developments. State capabilities have really made a strong comeback. How they are going to be deployed, uh, each of them with uh, which intensity, in which country is something you have to see. But economically and socially, I think at least in the next few years, this will be very strong and clear, and it's likely to remain uh, for the foreseeable, foreseeable future, I guess. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, uh, perhaps for one last question. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying that, you know, we're, you know, we're at a point where we can reopen the economy, at least in certain places. It may vary from place to place, depending on conditions there. Um, and so what seemed almost impossible two weeks ago is suddenly, of course, Trump is uh, promoting this idea. But there are many people. I mean, everybody basically wants to get the economy back up and running again. But there's, of course, this concern that this will just reignite outbreaks and we'll be back to where we started from. So I wonder uh, how you see that in Brazil. Are you at a similar kind of point? Uh, or is that down the road? And do you think it's you know in the cards? I mean, everybody in the United States seems to agree that um, in order to make that shift, we have to have a massive testing capacity, which is simply not available at, at, at present. Uh, so how does that look in Brazil? Well, I think it's similar to the U.S. situation, much more similar to the U.S. situation than it is to the European situation. Bolsonaro would like to reopen everything tomorrow, if he could. But the sanitary agencies, the sanitary uh, intelligence that we have in Brazil is very strong. And people were able to control the, the epidemics 
at its very start. So, as I said at the beginning, it's not as as bad as it looked. It might be. It's still to be seen, but it's so far it didn't hit the country as badly as it could have hit it, because there is there has been a lot of social distancing, not ideally, not at the ideal level, uh, because you have around. 60% of people respecting that fully and other people are not respected entirely. Some people have to work and this sort of thing. But overall, I think it did work. And Bolsonaro sacked his uh, health minister because he thought he was too popular. And his minister, uh, Maneta, disagreed with Bolsonaro because of the social distancing issue and the chloroquine issue as well. Because Bolsonaro wanted uh, no social distancing and was entirely sure that this sort of medicine would do the job. Or else he pretended to be sure that it would do the job. Now he has a new health minister, which is much more discreet. He's not a professional politician. And he's also a doctor. And he seems to, to be trying to not provoke Bolsonaro too much. But on the other hand, follow the sanitary regulations they all, that all the authorities in Brazil are following, including all the health secretaries of state governments, because these people are very keen on controlling the situation. Of course, there is also a lot of pressure by businessmen, and especially uh, retailers who are desperate because the economy has come basically to a halt. And of course, this is also a problem. You can't stay closed with a, uh, uh, close it down all the time and unlock it down working 24 hours for months. And this uh, implies that uh, at some point we have to, to open uh, stores and come back to a normal economic life. Some state governments have started to speak about this now. Some of them have already laid out plans to start going back to business uh, again. Sao Paulo in particular, where we have most of cases and deaths, uh, but also Rio is starting to speak about that. Yet I think it's going to be very slow. We won't have anything that will be sudden. That's the promise also of the health minister. And if he tries to do something different, I think the state governors and, uh, and the health secretaries won't take up the, the policy proposed by the health minister. And he's trying to be cooperative with the health secretaries uh, at state level and also at city level. And at some point, I think, we're going to go back to business entirely, but not before June, maybe even later. Although some activities will be resumed uh, in the course of May. But I think there was a real uh, winner in this process. Science and rationality came out stronger uh, than it was. There is in Brazil, close to Bolsonaro, organized by his youngest son, something that the, the hatred cabinet, which works especially like in Trump in the US through the internet, they are present in all social media and they have been really vicious. Even before the election of Bolsonaro helped him a lot to get elected. After the election, 
they have uh, made an awful job attacking people and trying to set his agenda and win arguments and this sort of thing. They have a lot of trouble to fight back the, the mere fact that without science, there would have been a slaughter in Brazil through the coronavirus crisis. So uh, I think uh, they were defeated. The argument was defeated. It's very clear. And there is a lot of popular support. Despite the, the harm the, the lockdown is doing to the economy, that social distancing is very... You don't have really a lockdown. You have a sort of social distancing with widespread, but it's not really a lockdown like in France or South Africa. It's more like the U.S., in fact. So, but of course, it's uh, hurting the economy very badly. Still, people support it, and science and public opinion came together. So, getting out of this process of, of social distancing and slowing down the economy will be, I think, piecemeal. Nobody's going to try to do anything crazy. And in this regard, Bolsonaro was really neutralized. He's not dead, he's wounded, but he was really neutralized for the time being. Uh, but as the crisis is still unfolded, I think the, the evaluation of most epidemiologists in Brazil that will have the virus circulating with some strength until September. So September 1, the situation should be under control. So how this opening of the economy and control of coronavirus will play out. It's not entirely clear, but people are trying to lay down plans in a rational way, especially in Sao Paulo, which was the most affected area, is the richest state in Brazil, and has a governor who was very close to, to Bolsonaro, but parted ways with him, as most of the governors have, because he really provoked them, was very aggressive in relation to them, and tried to put his hatred cabinet to work against them. So mm. the situation is not good for him. Otherwise, you'd have an opening of the economy right away. I see. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. And I want to thank Jose Mauricio Dominguez of the Rio de Janeiro State University for his insights into the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on Brazil and on Brazilian politics. I also want to thank Christo Voinov for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying see you next time on International Horizons.